0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is the extraordinary Shep Gordon. For those of you who may not know him is actually a legendary talent manager, film agent, producer, and actually was featured in the 2013 documentary called Super Minch, The Legend of Shep Gordon, which actually was directed by Mike Myers. Today's conversation is in two parts, and we're going to talk about the extraordinary individuals he met in his role as a talent manager, including the fact that he remains the talent manager of Alice Cooper, who he uh, began managing in 1968. But he's also managed Anne Murray, Blondie, Teddy Pendergrass, Luther Vondross, and many more. The other thing about him is that he actually was responsible for creating the celebrity chef. In fact, Emeril Lagasse has said he single-handedly created celebrity chefs and his client list has included not only Emeril Lagasse, but also Charlie Trotter, Daniel Boland, Jonathan Waxman, Roger Verge, Roy Yamaguchi, and many more. We're also going to discuss how he got to know the Dalai Lama and actually cooked for him. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, so it was very nice of uh, Steve out to connect us.
1: Yeah, who's uh, got, got a beautiful residence here in Maui. Really uh, beautiful sanctuary.
0: Is that how you met because uh, uh, he go, he's in Maui a lot?
1: Yeah, we met, I don't know if he'd like me to tell the story, but I'll tell it anyway. (laughs) Um, I presented uh, His Holiness here, and um, I got an anonymous uh, donation, rather large, the largest donation of the whole event anonymously, and it took me about a year to track it down and see who it was. And I got his name and address and went and knocked on his door to thank him. And We've been friends ever since.
0: Yeah, Steve's a great guy. He um, He's a benefactor of the work I do at Stanford. And uh, so we've become friends. And he actually frequently talked about you. And then um, it sort of led to our connecting. And then uh, me reading your book, you're reading my book. and
1: uh, Yeah, I enjoyed your book.
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was sort of your own backstory. And because, you know, oftentimes that sort of drives who we become or how we interact with others. Because I think your story is interesting. On the one hand, it's one of extraordinary, I don't know if synchronicity is the right word, but connecting with people. And also, I think, demonstrates the loyalty that comes from being authentic and, if you will, compassionate. But then the other side of it is, how has your own background potentially limited yourself in terms of uh, who you become or, or what has happened to, to you? Because I think, you know, you mentioned in your book, you're by yourself. And I think you've reflected on why that is or what it was that sort of has put you in that position.
1: Well, since that book, I've gotten married and have a two-year-old.
0: Oh, my God. Well, that's... that's <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs>
1: Yep, yeah, so I worked on that issue.
0: Good. Well, that's maybe a great ending. We can uh, talk about yeah, that. Yeah. So you know, I, I I'm not.
1: Sh- it's uh, I mean, it's interesting points you raise. Few of which I hadn't really thought about. I don't really think about limitations. So it's an interesting question of how my background may have limited me, and I don't. I don't really ever, you know, especially watching this two-year-old grow up. I more than ever destiny becomes unbelievably important in everything. There's a preordained path. You know, it's funny when you, when uh, they sent the rocket ship up to move the asteroid, right? They only had to move it a couple of inches to avoid the crash. And that's what I sort of think of raising Benjamin. Um, if I can pinpoint those places where he's going to crash and maybe using every bit of knowledge and, compassion I have move him a couple of inches so he avoids the crash <laughs> that would be remarkable because it all it just seems it's, it's so big
0: you know I think that's correct and I think you know the challenge is of course you if you will using the asteroid analogy you push it a few inches but then that changes its destiny in a different way right
1: yeah 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 it's beautiful I mean it's beautiful it really shows you how important your own actions can be even in a world where you don't really control much of anything, I think you can really balance those two together in a really important way for to, um, if nothing else, make you feel good about your compassion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that, that's, uh, actually funny. Yeah. So maybe the first place we should start then is, uh, you know, you've described your background in a variety of different places, but, uh, Tell me a little bit about growing up in uh, New York and, in a, if you will, a Jewish community and your own sort of religious faith when you were younger and maybe uh, how both the experience of growing up in your environment not only had an impact on you, because I know I think you also said your mother was fairly strict or at least uh, – and your father was quite quiet – uh, sort of that dynamic and how that affected you and, uh, and your worldview.
1: Yeah. You know, um, maybe first to the Jewish part, which was interesting. It was an interesting moment in time, an interesting place. I, I think the Jewish community as a whole of my era in that region, New York, we weren't particularly religious. We were culturally uh, significant. The culture was important to us growing up. And when I see my friends, I just had a reunion of 30 Sammy um, Sigma Alpha Mu Jewish fraternity from college kids and very few practice the religion seriously, but almost all culturally that translates into, they may not go to temple for Rosh Hashanah or, but they'll practice go, maybe go sit for the chauffeur or do the honey and apple. Right. So I think we all bring that. And I think we all bring a, a uh, extreme importance on the material world because all of our ancestors had nothing. So I think um, one of the hardest prisons for us all to escape was the material that everything's about how much you have. Do you have a bigger car than next door? Do you have the best seat at the Jewish center? Do you have the right pants? In the Jewish culture, that was very, very powerful. And you still see a lot of us really consumed with making money, even when we have more than we need, rather than spreading it around. So I think that part has, has definitely had a big influence on my life, because that's a very important for me with my clients, was to try and get them economically sound.
0: Now, that's interesting. So do you still, even now then, sort of and obviously, you know, you've lived an extraordinary life, but do you still always look at the bottom line, if you will, when you analyze things in terms of? Uh, yeah, very.
1: Yeah. I still have that Jewish thing of uh, going to sleep every night, assuming
0: I'll wake up broke. Well, you know, I, I certainly i <laughs> I don't think you have to. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to be Jewish to have that, but certainly, I uh, uh, I've known a number who do have that, and and you We're know, the same generation. Yeah, yeah it, it's sort of interesting that always sort of sitting in the background and, you know, when is enough enough?
1: Right. It's a big question. Yeah. In every area. It's a, it's a big question.
0: Well, have you, have you resolved that yet? Um,
1: you know, I've never had that greed button and I've never been an accumulator. So it's really never been one of my issues. I seek other things. You know, I think I, I, my addiction maybe is to, um, I don't know self-gratification is the right thing, but I love you know, looking in the mirror and being able to tell myself, man, you did it. Um, and I am sort of addicted to that. Um, but it, it never was the, uh, the bank account. I used to always tell my clients, other managers will make you a lot more money than me. If it's really just the money, I can give you a list of guys that are great at it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's an interesting point. And in some ways, it sort of probably comes down to, you know, why you've had such enduring relationships. Because, uh, you know, if everything becomes about the money, then you forget the most important part, which is sort of the creativity and the other aspects, which really make something special versus sort of being manipulative to, you know, maximize return. But let's go a little back (laughs) before we head off there, because I also want to talk to you about the Dalai Lama. So from this background, what motivated you or sort of resulted in you becoming a pharmaceutical agent, if you will?
1: (laughs) That was strictly need (laughs) uh, to get through college for financing and to uh, buy lunch. It never had a philosophical base to it at all.
0: Uh, it, it, it was just a sort of a survival mode, huh? Mm-hmm. And was that fairly easy to do? I mean, uh, uh, or... Yeah, I think it
1: probably had some risks, but I was young and crazy and did what I had to do, what I felt I had to do. Not my... I can't say it's my proudest moment, but I did what I you know, had to do. I tried not to leave blood and not to hurt people.
0: Well, I think, uh, you know, that's what we all try to do. And, you know... Uh, I think if all of our lives... Were st- I wish we all tried to do that. Well, <laughs> well uh, most of us tried to do that. Uh, we wouldn't need the podcast. <laughs> yeah, Yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think, though, you know, many of us have done things which, in our ideal world, we would not be in that position. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. But, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, this is, in some ways, sort of uh, reflecting on being kind to yourself instead of uh, being hypercritical.
1: Yeah, I want, I want to to get just to loop into the Dalai Lama for a second, I always would think of these questions I wanted to ask him, and it was really tough for me to ever ask him anything. The only thing I ever got out was, thank you. And uh, But the one time I was in the room when someone asked him, um, how did he go to sleep at night knowing that he lost his country? How did he sleep? And he just looked at him with a beautiful smile and said, you know, I did the best I could do. I really know that I did the best I could do. And that's all I could do is the best I could do. And I've carried that with me for those kind of moments. I'd like to think I always did the best I could do at that moment. And it may not have been great, but, you
0: know. You know if you can accept that and, and truly believe that, all you can do is uh, be accepting of that and uh, in some way sort of being forgiven that to yourself that you weren't able to live up at that point in time, uh, to sort of your highest ideal. And sometimes these things are out of our reach, no matter either how much we want it or how much we deserve it. You know, I'm a little bit familiar with your college years, but one of the things that uh, I found really quite interesting was this thing you did about, was it Thalia or, uh, visiting, uh,
1: yeah, Dallas and Marcantia.
0: Maybe you can share with us that story because yeah. in, in some ways, I think it's a, a prelude to your ability to market and have people believe and create a narrative.
1: Yeah, I was just in Buffalo and I did a QA and a with Alice and um, that came up, so I'm well-versed in it. And I, exactly what I said was that if it hadn't been for this moment in my life, I don't think I would have been doing what I did with Alice or any of these artists because that's really that gave me a highway to walk down, gave me a, a way to, to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. So here's a palace story. So huh, this is back in the 60s. Studying for exams. You used to take things called black beauties, which were speed. So you could stay up for two, three days and study for your your finals. I was a sophomore. I was rushing freshmen. They had been up for a couple of days. I walked into their room. They were hysterical laughing. They had just been studying the sex organ of a fern, which was called the thallus of Marcantia. Thallus being the organ, Marcantia being the plant. And they were so, they had been up for days. They were ridiculous. They were talking about how it sounded like the ruler of an African country thalas of marcanthia and they're bowing down to the Thallus and one of the guys is playing the Thallus. it ended up with um one of them having a friend who went to the un in new york strictly as a goof sent a telegram to the mayor of buffalo saying that the Thallus of Marcantier, a very rich oil rich african nation was visiting america for the first time he had a relative in buffalo so he was coming here first and would the mayor give him an official welcoming and we figure that's the end of that. Ha, ha, ha. We go to sleep. We wake up. It's the front page of the Buffalo evening news <laughs> that the Dallas of Arcadia is coming. So we all regroup. And the kid who was the main perpetrator here, his name was Artie Shine. He decided that we pulled our money together. He flew to New York, took a sheet from the bed and a pillowcase to dress up in a turban, like <laughs> an African ruler. <laughs> and, uh, but we didn't, we, we didn't let it sit there. He gets on the plane and leaves. We call the B'nai B'rith and complain that the most anti-Semitic ruler in the world, the thallis of Markania, is coming to Buffalo and they give him a royal reception. Well, that afternoon, the plane lands as 400 picketers from B'nai B'rith. Thallus go home. We don't, you know, uh, <laughs> no malice for the Thallus. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> the great posters which I have pictures of and they finally figured out you know who he was and that it was a hoax a funny little footnote is I, I when I was on my book tour I was in Baltimore at a Jewish center and four people in the audience had been in the B'nai chapter that came out to the airport in <laughs> Buffalo <laughs> in uh, that's hilarious so anyway, that, sort of, that made me realize that you could write history that you didn't have to wait for it we sat in a room we thought about it, and all of a sudden that became part of Buffalo's history. Thousands of people were at it in Buffalo Evening News, student people I, and when I started working with Alice, I was my first challenge was that I was at a hall that I hadn't sold a lot of tickets. And I how do I get the notoriety that I got from the Thallus? And that's I it wor- I I did a stunt, the stunt worked, and I pulled that off for. Um, every artist I've ever worked with, I try and think ahead to what would—it was much easier in those days because there was only TV or newspapers. So my thoughts were always, what What do I know the TV station will carry? What do I know the newspaper will carry? And uh, so that really set me up for it. I thank Buffalo all the time for that.
0: What motivated you, though, to leave Buffalo to head to L.A.?
1: Well, I went from Buffalo to New York to the New School for Social social Research. They had just opened. It was a couple of years. I was a a liberal who had just gone through the Vietnam War period where we actually had some effects. We felt like that maybe we did change something. Civil rights were really strong. I went to the New School, night school, and worked during the day at a place called Divine Garments, which made uh, clothes for dead people. No backs. Um, so every client I had was crying. It wasn't my favorite job. And um, a recruiter came in from the, the prison system in California, recruiting uh, people with sociology degrees, which I had to join the penal system as probation officers in California. And it was during the Reagan days when there was a lot of news about the police putting long hairs up against the wall on Sunset Strip. And arresting people for having long hair. And I, I was always that guy on a white horse looking to help somebody. And I figured, okay, I, I can, and I was a long hair. And uh, I said, okay, I can, I can help some people out here. So I took the
0: job. Now that job was uh, brief.
1: Yeah. Less than one day. <laughs> 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 yeah. I was in Los Pedrinos juvenile hall. I went out, I I thought I was going to be a savior. I really was just naive. I don't know, maybe 18, 19 year old, really naive. Hey guys, I'm here. Your life's going to be great now. And uh, it was mostly Latinos. I would say 99% Latino kids at juvenile hall. So nobody over 18. And um, my first assignment from the other guards who hated me already because I had long hair, which they made me tuck under my hat was to play softball, except I didn't realize I was going to be the softball. And um, I guess they were breaking me in. So the kids were really nice to me. They made believe they were really hurting me. They got around me and made believe they hit me with bats, and I did a little screaming. And I left and drove into LA, and my life began. The luckiest day of my life. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a fascinating if you will, effect of synchronicity where you showed up at a hotel, and here suddenly you're surrounded by young performers before they became uh, famous. Let me ask you a question b- before we talk about that, though: Is so, uh, were you involved in psychedelics at all at that time?
1: I was, yeah. That was my uh, that was my drug of choice at the moment.
0: Was that LSD or?
1: Yeah, it was the original LSD. When in Buffalo. A group called the San Francisco Mime Troop. Peter Coyote was the head of it. Oh,
0: I know Peter, actually. <laughs> yeah.
1: So they, they came through Buffalo. I had produced the show. They came to my house. It was right around Christmas time. And they put these sugar cubes on my Christmas tree, which were sugar cubes of acid. Ah. Owsley acid. Owsley was traveling with them.
0: Oh, wow. And uh, that was my first trip. Do uh, do you still stay in touch with Peter?
1: Not at all. I don't think he even has any recollection. <laughs> and I had no idea who he was, but I heard the voice on a commercial.
0: Yeah, he's a big voice artist.
1: And when I heard the voice, I said, that's the guy who turned me on to acid. So I I went through uh, Wikipedia to find out who was the voice on the commercial. It was Peter Coyote. And then I looked up his bio, and he was a San Francisco mime troupe. And it was that voice, because his voice is so distinct. So I had a lot of it, but I left it in the car the night day at the uh, Los Patrinos <laughs> Juvenile <hall. laughs>
0: That That was probably wise. It well,
1: um, was a wise place, so that, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, it's sort of interesting, though, you see this, uh, if you will, reemergence of uh, the use of psychedelics. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, did you find taking LSD was enlightening, or was it just uh, you know having a good time? Well, I would say... I took mushrooms for
1: my first psychedelic experience. Peyote, excuse me, peyote was my first psychedelic experience. I would say by far my best, my clearest, stays with me my whole life. No real high or low, to me at least. I did it for a summer. Ate, I ate the actual peyote uh, maybe 10 times during the summer. When I got to acid... I would say I did it more as a thing to do than something that really enlightened or changed my life. I think it maybe helped me a little bit, be creative. Um, but I really feel I haven't done any in 40 years and I really feel like I got very lucky to, uh, have not had any, what I, what I feel are any damages cause I've seen a lot of friends with damages. Sure. Um, And I have no real desire to do it again, although I'm very intrigued by microdosing. And I think I'm going to try the journey because it's people I really respect who have walked down sort of the same road I have are very, very positive on it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've uh, actually consulted for a firm in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, and part of what they do is... uh, supporting people who uh, are interested in microdosing, and you can do it there or they actually have a created a package which when i say a package an app that they actually guide you through microdosing. of course you have to find your own uh, right source, source. Yeah. but uh, yeah you may actually want to check it out it's called spinoza.co and they've got really got actually quite an elegant uh, app for that But, you know, that's become extraordinarily popular, I think. Yeah.
1: And and very similar comments from people I know who are conscious. They all talk about clarity, that it helps them focus, helps them be clear.
0: I think a couple things happen. One is that for many people, it diminishes the negative voices that go on in your head that distract you from being present, And uh, I think by doing so, that allows you to focus and not, you know, to continue to be reactive, which, of course, creates uh, stress and anxiety.
1: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Uh, Are you a meditator?
1: You know, I am, but not in a traditional way. I take a couple of jacuzzis a day. And if I really get frazzled and feel like I need to focus and calm down, I go to the stove and cook.
0: Uh, we're going to talk about cooking soon, too. Obviously, you were involved with Janice Chaplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, and then, as clients, of course, Alice Cooper. And I want to ask a couple of questions about this, and then uh, as well as Teddy Pendergrass and Rick James. One is obviously, you know, people can look at Alice and go, oh my God, you know, this guy, he's wore eye shadow, sort of looked crazy, and did these crazy antics.
1: And it worked. <laughs> there you have it,
0: and and uh, but and I think that's the interesting thing is that there was intentionality by many of the things that were done to uh, I think you even said to uh, make all the parents hate him, uh, which yeah. would of course uh-huh. uh, have the opposite effect of making all the kids like him, right?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of aspects to a career, and it takes a family to make a career. But one of the jobs of a manager is to get people to look in the window. There's nothing you can do if once they look in the window, there's nothing there. There has to be, you, the product you're selling has to be valid or it's a one shot, bingo, bango, tonight. Alice is is a truly unusual entertainer. Part of his appeal is he's a victim of our society. He's not really part of it, which is really bizarre. Alice Cooper is a character that we write and we develop. Alice, the human, wakes up at five in the morning, reads the Bible, goes and plays golf. Alice, the character on stage, will do anything he can do to get parents to hate him because then the kids will pay attention to him. And that's my job is to get him to pay attention. I can't get him to like him, but I can get him to pay attention. And that's what all that stuff, it really, it's an interesting moment for me as a manager and for Alice as an entertainer because when we broke in 70 we caught the wave of homosexuality although that wasn't alice's lifestyle he was living he was a living example of what that lifestyle was a man named alice makeup dresses hair the largest performer in the world today is harry styles who's a cross-dresser 80 of the audience comes cross-dressing it's really the same it's an extension of that sexual revolution And he's not a real cross-dresser. He's Olivia Wilde's girlfriend. You know, he's a very – so it's – I I forgot where I started that conversation. But anyway, it's been –
0: I think you were separating Alice, the human being, from Alice, the character. And I think – and I wonder if that's actually true of Harry Styles as well. I mean, are these affectations for the reality that to maintain a – Following, you have to be different, and you have to offer something that's unusual to get the eyeballs. Yeah, and, and he's a reflection
1: of the times. But I mean, it is a kind. Of, I don't know if he's. I, I I'm friendly with Olivia. So i I want her Instagram. I see pictures. Like he in one song, he puts on a dress and rosy red cheeks. That's a conscious decision. That's not what he wears out on the street. Right. That's a conscious, you know, you're going to wear a tuxedo, you're going to wear, the, no, I'm going to wear a dress with big, so he looks like a character out of Annie the movie. Right. He looks exactly like Annie.
0: Well, you know, I think that actually begs another statement, which is people get confused with a character with what that person is like. I don't know if uh, in real life is the case. I think the one, the one who becomes the most confused is the one playing the character?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the the fans can survive it. The actor has a rough time surviving it.
0: Really, is that because it's they get lost in the character or?
1: Yeah, they just—it's very hard to separate the two. My answers are all um, non-educated and uh, knee-jerk reactions, but I, I always my my corner of the world was basically live entertainers whether they were whether they were chefs live entertaining in their restaurant singers on a stage they were li- they weren't film stars acting in a studio with no one reacting to them they were he- either hearing the applause because it worked or hearing silence because it didn't work one of my thoughts is that the journey to get to be a star is all about rejection, it's, you know, everyone has been rejected thousands of times, way beyond what any normal human being could endure in terms of rejection, or would choose to endure. So this need for people to accept them is so strong. If they want to get rejected that many times to get accepted, there's this overwhelming need in them for people to tell them they're great, you're the greatest, you're amazing, you're the greatest, you're fantastic, you're the greatest but it doesn't fill the hole. So they sell out an arena of 80,000 80, people. They get back, they look in the mirror, it's the same schmuck. And some, for some people, that's a really hard thing to deal with. That's why you get, you know, you talk about my friends, Janice, dead at 25, Jim at 25, Jimmy at 25. You know, you look at the age of these people, Anthony Bourdain from the cooking world, just going. It's a tough journey.
0: I think it was 27, actually, for Janice and for...
1: 20, yeah, 26, 27, something like that, yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, that brings up a very interesting reality is that on the one hand, to put up with this, you have to be so driven to want that acceptance, which you think will uh, fulfill that whole, but no matter you know which mountain you climb to the top of, there's nothing there at the end of it.
1: You need to separate yourself from
0: it. In your experience, uh, if you will, what what percentage of people do you think are able to healthily do that?
1: Uh, very small. I, th- I think there's a the majority limp their way through. but I think on the extreme end and on the extreme happy and the extreme miserable, 15, twenty percent on each side and the middle limps through, they go to one rehab maybe during their life. Maybe it's two or three divorces they lived through.
0: And would you suggest then that the reality is that one of the drivers for them to try to be accepted after all these rejections, again, as we talked about, is this incredible need for external validation, but it often hides a profound emptiness. And if they don't get the external validation or that emptiness persists, then that's certainly a pathway to then get addicted to other agents, and and would you say that's to ease the pain?
1: Exactly, that's exactly the journey. I mean, I used, i think I, in the documentary I said I used to look at every client. I used to wear glasses, so I would take off my glasses for for effect, and I'd look them in the eye and I'd say, you know, if I do my job perfectly, I will probably kill you. Luckily for you, I'm not perfect, but I'm really good. So you will be maimed. That's the price you're going to pay for this. You are going to be maimed. And they all laugh, but they all got maimed.
0: Yes, I was going to say. Well, speaking of maimed, certainly you look where Alice is today. And I don't know him. Obviously, you know him extraordinarily well. But uh, was he able to overcome that demon and sort of find that place where he's comfortable with himself?
1: Yeah, I think he's very, it, it took two rehabs, almost dying, losing the wife, losing everything he had, really hitting the bottom. I mean, he truly hit the bottom, but he's come back and he's been sober, I think about 30 years. And uh, I see no signs of anything but joy. There's no, uh, right from the first day he came out, no one had to change that lifestyle for him. I'm a drinker. I drink every night at dinner. He's in my house. It's an open bar. He stays in my house. I have a huge bar. None of it. It's not part of his life. He's always had a very strong religious belief foundation. Not one I totally agree with, but I'm happy for him that he has it. And that's provided him a real, I think, a a real guiding. It's really interesting to see the good side of organized religion, which I'm usually very opposed to. And I see it in him; he has, he truly embodies all the things that you would want a good Christian to embody. And I've never, I've never seen him walk past anybody who's needy where he hasn't given them something. He's never treated a fan. He's ne- I've never heard him curse. I've never heard him raise his voice. He truly lives what the Bible says a good Christian should live like.
0: Well, you know, I mean, nothing is more profound than seeing somebody who embraces the positive aspects of religious faith. Unfortunately, as you well know, that's more of a rarity where, you know, religion is held on your sleeve as a sign of superiority and the ability to judge others and not look in the mirror at themselves. I'm not a huge fan of organized religion. Well, it's interesting, nor am I, but as you probably saw from my book, I have ended up knowing a lot of, uh, different uh, spiritual and uh, religious leaders. And, uh, you know, my perspective on that is that the basis of religion is experiential over thousands of years, and it is that experiential component which is covered in dogma that creates religion. But at the end of the day, it's an acknowledgement that uh, being kind and compassionate actually manifests itself by actually significant improvement in your own health and happiness. And uh, uh, so I think that's uh, the plus side. Yeah, I agree
1: that it gets corrupted. Uh,
0: Yes. Well, that's uh, unfortunately the nature of humans. We don't have enough self-awareness to deal with our propensity for corruption. It's it's just like we're talking about these people who are so – I'm not sure if damage is the right word, but uh, who so need affirmation they'll do almost anything for it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't assuage the pain of the emptiness that is not being filled by all of those, uh, uh, things, unfortunately. One of the things that actually really intrigued me was your comment that, uh, uh Rick James was one of the most intelligent people you had met. And, uh, and obviously I, I did not know him, but, uh, you know, that would seem the opposite, at least on superficial glance.
1: Right. Yeah, you can't judge a book by its cover. Very, very intelligent guy from Buffalo. A firm grip on everything, you know. There are certain artists you work with who have a gift from God, Teddy Pendergrass. That he, I don't think he was even aware of. It just would flow through him. There's a special artist in life. And then there's the artists who may not have an exceptional gift, but are so intelligent that they know how to make it work. And that was Rick, in my opinion. The Mary Jane girls, his songs, he got it. He knew exactly what he needed to do to make it work. And it just really is always a joy for me to talk to, to talk about anything Had a really large um, scope of knowledge. Very joyful. He was the true victim of fame.
0: I, I mean, when you say he was the victim. When I say he was the victim of fame, the,
1: the, the world opened up to him when he became a star. The world opened up to Rick. And um, fool's gold is something really hard to deal with. It takes a long time to be able to see the difference between real gold and fool's gold. And it's, it's um, I think it's what kills all these people in my world, in the entertainment world. So he, he his world, Oh, he was a kid from Buffalo and all of a sudden he's Rick James. And the most beautiful woman, the best drugs, he ended up with a, one of the most beautiful women in the world who actually won an award as the most beautiful woman in the world. There was a search done for her. And uh, she introduced him to heroin. Wow. He just spiral, he just spiraled down. He got caught in that fool's gold. Cars, women, drugs.
0: Well, the sad part, of course, is uh, oftentimes you're surrounded by um, enablers who. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, it's, uh, really tough. Yeah, it's hard. He left me when I confronted him. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, my attitude, always I left Alice for a couple of years, too. My attitude always was recreational drugs are fine when you're doing drugs to hurt yourself. And I have to be the one to make that decision. Unfortunately, it can't be the other person. (laughs) But when I feel that, I'm not going to come in in the morning and work my ass off to make you money to kill yourself. I'll do it for you to make money to have 12 bottles of champagne with every bimbo in Hollywood. But I'm not going to do it for you to kill yourself. Um, So that was my conversation with Rick. And um, he chose the other path.
0: Yeah. And, of course, we know the consequences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was just in Buffalo and had dinner with the gentleman who bought his house and lives in his house. Oh, really? Yeah, and I've never gone to that house because he moved back to Buffalo after we separated. So I I tried to get there, but I didn't have time. I was really curious to see, you know, what he chose to live in.
0: Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.